it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and uh, before we get uh, before we get rolling along, I want to thank everybody who came out to the White Horse last night to kick off our 15th year of doing the Tom Sumner program. It was uh, nice to see everybody. I feel like we're uh, sort of reinvigorating the show after a couple of years of being in the bunker. Um, but we've got a great show in store today coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour. Th- and this is actually going to feel like a Friday show to me because uh, tomorrow is Earth Day and I have a special pre-recorded edition uh, of the show playing tomorrow. So for, for me, today is Friday. So just think of it as Friday Eve because we have a musical guest in the uh, third half of our three-hour tour, the 11 o'clock hour, and a great one, in fact, um, made possible with my friend from Oakland County, PG, who was at the event last night and and, uh, sort of co-hosted the event, and she'll be sitting in with us when we talk to Frida Payne about her new book, uh, Band of Gold. And... um, in the middle of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk to Dr. Amelia Kelly, who is the co-author of the new book, What I Wish I Knew. But we're going to start out uh, this hour with journalist and uh, author Joel Sandberg, who joins me by phone. Good morning, Joel. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Congratulations on 15 years. I'm very proud of you. Well, Good luck. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, I... I meant to to mention the name of uh, of your latest novel which is almost like praying but i was i was sort of hung up on the journalist and author because <laughs> so often on this show i interview journalists who are always looking to do something else <laughs> <laughs> and 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 Joel, it reminded me of a story I want to share with you because I think you'll appreciate it. There was a sure um, um, back in the days when we had uh, you know a, a daily print newspaper and and it was the paper of record for the local community, and all of the reporters there had all these great contacts. And I I knew a reporter that I used to talk to about things on uh, on a fairly regular basis, and I and I called the the paper one day and asked for him and whoever had picked up the phone said oh he doesn't work here anymore he got a real job <laughs> <laughs> yeah writing is a compulsion but it's not always a way to make a living <laughs> well but um 
there's there's something interesting about this particular book, almost like praying. Um, yeah. It's been described as using childhood memories and impressions of real people, places, and events to Absolutely. create a backdrop of authenticity. Is that the reporter in you? Uh, the statement or what the statement is saying because that, what that does, came from somebody else no what but, the statement um, is saying i don't want to i don't want to hang you with the language no, but no i don't i don't think that's but, i think that's just a function of of the writer in me rather than the journalist in me i, I was going to say there's just that that touch of reality you know and and trying to tell a real story or a very real seeming story if that wasn't influenced a little bit by your time as a journalist, but if not, we'll uh, just talk. <laughs> we'll we'll move on to whether or not the people that you based some of the characters on can recognize themselves in your book. Oh well, that, yeah, you can get you can get into a bit of a dangerous territory there, but I'm willing to take the chance if you are. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. Let me just reflect for a moment on what you just said about the journalism angle of it. I don't think that can be only because the germs of this, you know, the seeds of this story were planted when I was a kid, way before I knew what the word journalism meant. So I think it's, as I said, I think it's more of a function of, of my compulsion just to write about the things that, that I think about, that I wonder about, that I overhear, even that I learn in school. I mean, I ended up writing a play about a young teenage Benjamin Franklin based on a comment that a journalism professor made in college. So, you know, that's, that's where my, my writing comes from, just, just things that I wonder about. That probably be, helped me turn into a journalist. So it was the other way around. It wasn't the journalism that, that caused me to want to write some fiction. It was the fiction, I think, that caused me to want to write, want to be a journalist. That's that's interesting because um, yeah. usually I'm talking to people who were journalists first, yeah. and and then yeah. went into writing. And I always talk about the difference in the two kinds of writing. How how is the difference for you uh, when you're when you're telling a story? Does it make a lot of difference if you're making up elements of the story or telling a story that's based in fact? No, for me, and I hate to sound like a broken record, especially when I'm talking to somebody like you who knows a lot about records. You don't you don't want to hear a broken one. Uh, but to me, the writing is the writing. I don't care if it's fiction or nonfiction. I don't care if it's a short story or a novel or a long form feature article or an op ed. The key for me is smooth, readable, engaging interesting, compelling writing. Now, how you approach it from a research point of view and a structural point of view, you know, that's the science behind the writing. But the art behind the writing, I think, remains, for, at least for me, the same regardless of what it is that I am writing. It's always about the writing itself. Um, do, are you a, an extremely disciplined writer, Joel? Do you work from an outline um right to a schedule and so on? Uh, every writer has their own method and their own system. Um, I've 
been asked this a number of times before, and I've tried to think about it logically so I can come up with a cogent answer. And what I've discovered is that although I do have a basic certain method of, of writing, it can change on, on a dime. It changes from project to project a little bit. Basically speaking, however, very generally speaking, at least with fiction, I always start with knowing exactly how it's going to start, exactly how it's going to end, and a few little sprinkles of ideas in between those two things, and then it, it builds from there. But um, I always come to it with a, uh, a framework, a beginning, um, an end, and often a title. The title usually changes, though, but it helps to have something there. Uh, you know, almost like Praying had three different titles. The book before that, which was Blowing in the Wind, had three different titles. But they all had a beginning and an end when I, when I was starting out. You know, uh, Stephen King had the best answer to the to the question, do you write on a schedule or to the muse? And he said, always to the muse. But fortunately, the muse shows up every morning at 9 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, somebody asked me yesterday, I was doing another interview yesterday, and somebody asked me about writer's block. And my yeah. answer to that was that I, I don't believe that really exists. I think that's just a made-up word to... Uh, help describe a natural process uh, that actually helps writers, which is giving the writer a break. I think it's writer's break and not writer's block. I don't think there really is a writer's block. I think the brain naturally wants you to take a break from it to, you know, to recharge. Because the one thing that novice, that new writers have to do and don't almost never want to do is after they finish writing something, put it away. Put it away for a month or six months or sometimes even a year and then take it out again and work on it. Everybody's in patience. Life, you know, life goes on. Time doesn't stop for anybody. So everybody wants to just move forward with their projects. But for the art and craft of writing, I think it's imperative to put it away and forget about it and then take it out again and you'll see things that can be improved that, like you wouldn't believe. So that's where, the, where what they call writer's block actually comes in handy they asked some, the interviewer yesterday asked me if i ever got writer's block and i said no i get writer's break and that's whether <laughs> it happens naturally or not i don't know but i'm glad it does because you have to take that that little break in order to rejuvenate and and see things with a fresh pair of editorial eyes so um you know i, I don't have that kind of stephen king schedule where i start to write at nine o'clock every day i for me, the muse is whenever the muse decides that I should be writing. Joel, that, that writer's break sounds a little bit like I'm just resting my eyes. Mm, interesting. <laughs> well, is that a bad thing? I no, mean, that's, that's it's a, not that's a, a nice thing. It's, it's yeah. not a bad thing at all. In fact, uh, I, I, I find that kind of interesting. Does that mean when, when you're on fire, you binge write? Oh, I can. Yeah. Um, yeah, this sounds cliche, but, you know, sometimes the characters take over and they write it. And, and in cases like that, I have no choice but to stay up with them until one, two, three o'clock in the morning, whenever they decide that, <laughs> that, that they want to give me the break. Do, do they ever surprise you and take you in a direction that you just didn't expect or see coming? Yes. <laughs> no, I've, I've talked to other writers who've had that that experience where it it almost seems like 
the writers start telling them the story. Absolutely. Or the, sounds, the characters. It sounds weird. It, it sounds like a line. It sounds like a pickup line. But yeah, you know, pickup line for writers. But yeah, that happens. It's a wonderful thing. I think that's one of the reasons why I enjoy doing this. You can you can really fall in love with a character. Reason. It's 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 crazy. It's wonderful. It's lovely. I, I love doing it. Have you thought at all about uh, writing um, sequential stories? Uh, you mean like a sequel to, to like a series? Something? You know, I I always um, ask writers if they get to the end of a book and think, "Oh, but wait, there's more," and it becomes a trilogy or a series. Uh, yeah, it's crossed my mind. I have so many other ideas, though. That, like I said before, times stand still for no one that I just want to get to my other projects but that having been said I one of the biggest thrills I get is when some readers say to me oh you've got to write a sequel to this because that means that I touched them and and you know the joy for me is in the writing but the validation of that joy is in the sharing so the more people who read it and the more people who get back to me with comments and um and compliments that that just makes all the pain and torture of being a writer worthwhile. Um, and you never know. I, I'm depending on the success of almost like praying. And, and if I could interest some, some new publishers in, in some additional work, you never know. There might be a, a part two to almost like praying, or maybe even a part two to blowing in the wind, which is the novel before that. That's, it's not a bad idea, but it's, but no, it's nothing that I'm consciously working on only because like I just said, I have other things that I got to get done. I had someone tell me once that I should do shorter interviews because they couldn't turn them off. <laughs> no, you should do longer interviews and they should all be with me. There you go. There you go. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, I, I'm, I'm always really fascinated with the, the creative process. Yeah, Joel, and and I wonder um, where the ideas come from. Are, are you just constantly, all day, every day, you know, sort of looking at things and saying, "Hey, that that could be part of a a story," or that answers a question I had about this particular scene in something you're writing? Yeah, for whatever reason, and I'm I'm certainly not at this point going to go into anything spiritual or anything like that. But since I was a little kid. Um, and I may have referenced this before, so much of what I see or overhear or wonder about, uh, and like I said before, learned in school and things like that, I have, I have been turning, in, in my head at least at first, into books and plays and movies, and I, they stay there, they're stored there. Sometimes I write little ideas down in a little notebook, and those are always the basis of everything that I write. I never sit down and say, okay, i got to think of something to write, because <laughs> I feel that's a little bit fake. I, I, I don't think that's genuine. Joel, I have to put a comma here. I have to take a short break, but can you stick around for a few minutes and we'll talk some more? I could stick around for days. All right. That's All that's right. my kind of guest. My <laughs> guest is uh, journalist and author Joel Sandberg. His new book is Almost Like Praying. We're going to let our broadcast partners uh, squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. We'll be right back. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable? Crib or bassinet? So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we continue my conversation with author and uh, journalist Joel Sandberg. Um, we're going to talk about his uh, his new book, Almost Like Praying. He joins me by phone. Um, Joel, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. No, it's my pleasure. Um, just before the break, Joel, we were talking a little bit about the creative process, and you mentioned something um, that I found kind of interesting because I talk about a friend of mine who's a songwriter in Nashville who um, keeps a, a notebook and, and jots down uh, little ideas for song lyrics, uh, you know, catches and, and uh, uh, different chord pro- patterns and, and so on, and, and he calls it his boneyard. <laughs> and and you were saying you did something very similar to that, something you could go to and say, okay, you know, I'm feeling like I like I am, you know, in writing mode, and and here are some things that will get me started. Yeah, I have a few of these tiny little notebooks, and every time something uh, pops into my brain that I think might be useful somewhere along the line, whether it's just a, a line of dialogue or a character description or even a plot. I, I will jot it down. I did this a, a lot more when I was a little younger, but I have enough to last me for the next 20 or 30 years uh, in terms of individual ideas. For instance, I'm writing another novel now called Jackie Jester, which is very, very loosely based on my, speaking of songwriters, very loosely based on my grandfather, who was a somewhat noted comedy singer and songwriter named Benny Bell. Um, he's the guy who did the shaving cream song. I don't know if you remember. It substitutes the, the phrase shaving cream for a four-letter expletive. Um, <laughs> yeah, and he also had songs like Everybody Wants My Fanny and Take a Ship for Yourself and and uh, Going Home Again Without Pants. Oh, yeah. that's anyway, he was an entrepreneur. Uh, he did his, he had his own little studio. He, he did the writing and the recording and the distribution and designing the, the record labels. He did everything himself, and he was a fascinating guy. So my book, my novel, which I'm in the middle of the second draft, is called um, Jackie Jester, uh, which is a stage name. My grandfather's whose real name was Benjamin Sandberg. His stage name was Benny Bell. So Jack Aronson in my new novel is, is Jackie Jester. So the reason I'm telling you all this is to answer your question. I'm not going off on a weird tangent. So I was writing a scene the other day, and Jackie Jester meets up with this businessman who he ends up not liking at all, and a businessman who wants to help him. And Jackie is describing him to somebody and says, I hate that guy and his receding baldness. <laughs> and the phrase receding baldness came out of one of those little notebooks. I had jotted that down maybe 15 years ago, and I don't remember where, why, or how, but it's in that little notebook. I, sometimes I flip through the notebook just to jog my own memory, and I saw that phrase, and I said, hey, that's something Jackie Jester would say. So it's, in, it's going to be in the new novel, and it's from something that I jotted down in a tiny little yellow notebook about you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago. Oh, that's that's wonderful. I, and yeah. Joel, you said something else uh, that that I wanted to uh, peel back a little bit. You said um, almost in passing that you didn't want to get too spiritual or or whatever. And yet, the title of your book is almost like <laughs> praying. And I I thought you know I'd be remiss if I didn't call you out on that. Um, oh, I'm glad you did. How how I'm does glad you did. how does how does faith or spirituality or 
praying, frankly, make its way into this story? Uh, two, two, it's, a, it's a two-pronged answer. I'll be quick. Um, number one, the reason before that I had mentioned spirituality was because I was referring to why do I want to be a writer? Is it something that's preordained in some way? Is, you know, if there is a God, did he or she, uh, is he or she the reason that I want to be a writer, or is it just something that you can't explain? So that's, that's what I was referring to before. Now, in terms of this new novel, almost like praying, um, I'm so glad, that's why you're the professional, and that's why I'm sitting here and you're sitting in your studio, because you ask great questions. So thank you for asking that. But the answer is, um, in Almost Like Praying, um, there's one main character, a very troubled young man named Douglas, who is a policeman in the Bronx. And he's not having a good time of life at all. He's miserable. But he's also very talented. He could sing, he can act, he could dance, he can play basketball, he can play baseball. And he decides to join a community theater production of uh, uh, West Side Story. Uh, he thinks that'll help him, you know, soothe his aching brain, his aching mind. And he gets the lead role of Tony in West Side Story, in this community theater production. And he meets a young Puerto Rican woman whose actual name is Maria, who gets the part of Maria in the same musical. And... I don't know if you or your audience uh, knows, but you probably do. There's a song in West Side Story called Maria, and there's a line, there are two lines in it by uh, Sondheim that go, uh, say it loud, and it's music playing, say it soft, and it's almost like praying. So because he falls in love with this Maria, uh, which sets off a, a chain of events that lead to the conclusion of the day, this book, which leads to the third part of the book, which is a relationship uh, between a, a young girl, also named Maria, and Doug's icy, cold, pride, proud Irish Catholic mother leads to a relationship between them. That's where the title comes from, but it also refers to many instances throughout the book where people are saying things like, well, if you do this, it's almost like, uh, it's almost like wishing, or if you do that, it's almost like hoping, or if you do that, it's almost like praying. So it comes in over and over again, where everything you do is almost like praying. You wish, you hope, you know, life changes, life throws curveballs in your way, but if you hope and wish and pray and you're a good person, it can, everything you do can be almost like praying. You know, I'm glad you mentioned um, the mother, Dolores Farrell, um, yeah. because one of the things about this book, Joel, that, that I find really interesting is that it blends three stories. Yes. And I'm, I'm having not read the book yet, and I apologize. The, um, I'm, I'm curious, obviously the, the policeman turned community actor, uh, is, is, probably one of the stories but i wonder is dolores another one of the stories the way the book turned uh, shaped up the way it did um was one of those things that we were talking about before it just happened on its own um it's three 
stories that are all inter <coughs> excuse me all interconnected. The first one is the Farrells and the Kellehers, which is the family's roots. They come from Ireland in the early part of the 1900s ah. and settle settle in the Boston area. <clears throat> and it's all about uh, their their life there, and then they relocate to Long Island, New York's Long Island, and uh, the family is raised there. The second part of the story is all about one of the sons, uh, the troubled young man named Doug, who becomes a cop in New York City. Um, and then the third story is about Doug's illegitimate child and his mother. They end up being together. Doug gets out of the picture, and I don't want to give away too much, but he's out of the picture, and the little girl and the icy cold grandmother end up being together, and that's the third part of the book. And the reason it came together like that is because the whole story is written by a journalist who lives across the street from Dolores. Now, this journalist, when he was a boy, he was a friend of Doug's, the cop, and he's the, he was the main character in my previous novel, Blown in the Wind. He, he, too, was troubled, but he grows up to be a successful journalist. And one day, he is sitting at his old bedroom window when he's visiting his parents. You know, he's grown by now, but he's sitting in his old bedroom, and his bedroom window looks out across the street to the Kellerhurst house, which is the, the family at the heart of Almost Like Praying, and he sees Dolores, the mother, his, his old friend's mother, yeah. sitting on the steps with this little six-year-old dark-skinned girl with her, with her arm around her and, and smiling, and, and the journalist says to himself, now wait a minute, that's Mrs. Kelleher with a smile on her face, hugging a little dark-skinned girl? This woman who, who was always miserable, who was always icy cold, who never wanted to give anybody the benefit of any doubt, who had criticism of everything? That doesn't seem like Dolores that I knew growing up. And as a journalist, he decides, you know what? I'm going to research this family. I'm going to research its roots. I'm going to research what happened to Doug. I'm going to research who that little girl is. I'm going to try to find out why I'm sitting here now seeing Dolores Kelleher, of all people, hugging a little girl and smiling. That just does not seem like something Dolores would do. So he ends up spending several years researching the entire Kelleher family, and he writes the three separate stories that in 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 essence is almost like praying well the thing that uh, one of the the elements that caught my attention reading uh, a, a pretty good synopsis of the of the book was just this idea that Dolores had her future all planned out and then my favorite line in the synopsis didn't quite work out that way <laughs> well which may a major explain theme of a book of the book and would you agree that that's the way it is for a lot of us. Uh, absolutely, that's what caught my yeah. that's what caught my attention, and maybe explains why she seems um, a little jaded. She takes it to an extreme. I mean, she had everything down to the you know to the color of hair that she wanted her children to have. I mean, she <laughs> had the whole thing planned. She knew where they wanted, she knew, she, and the emphasis is on she, she knew where they should go to college. She knew what they should be when they grow up. I'm talking about all her children. She knew where she wanted to live, and it wasn't on Long Island. She wanted to live in a Boston suburb and be part of that Irish Catholic legacy heritage that she loved so much. She turned her house on Long Island into a little 
into a little uh, Irish Catholic uh, tribute to her Massachusetts roots, much to her husband's dismay, because he's not from there originally. Um, she had everything planned down to, to the minute, to the second. And, you know, you, you can't do that. Life isn't like that. I, I mean, I, I think of myself. I, I thought by now I might be a, a, a slightly more <laughs> famous writer than I, than I am. I thought I might have been involved in television and movies. Uh, you know, I dabbled in both, but I'm nowhere. Oh, I'm I had not a, even in the same universe. I, I had a terrible uh, 25th birthday because I realized for the first time I wasn't going to be a millionaire by 30. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so you either you, you either go along with it and you adapt, or you become miserable. And for much of the book, Dolores is miserable, and some until something very significant happens that your listeners are going to have to buy the book to find out what it is. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to do any spoiler alerts, but but I am curious about something we were talking about a little bit earlier, yeah. and and that is the um, uh, the intersection of of this book, uh, almost like praying with your previous book, Blowing in the Wind, with yeah. a grown up version of a character from the previous book, and right. I, I I'm just wondering how much overlap there is there, being that these are both standalone books. That's a good question because it's it's exceedingly difficult to answer. Only because um, Daniel, who is the boy who was the star of Blowing in the Wind, and he becomes the journalist who essentially writes almost like praying, is there throughout the whole thing only by virtue of the fact that it's his work that we're reading. But he isn't there in terms of his life. He, the reader does not find out too much about him other than that scene where he's sitting in his old bedroom and he sees Dolores across the street hugging the little girl named Maria. Um, so he's there, but he's not there. It, it, it's an interesting dynamic. I, it, I, I'm glad you brought that up because even I haven't thought about it that much. I mean, it just it is what it is. It happened that way. Um, uh, I think, this, as a matter of fact, you know, as I said before, I've had ideas for books and novels and plays and movies for years and years and years, and hopefully I'll get to them all. So the seeds for this one were planted as far back as the seeds from uh, Blowing in the Wind. So when I was writing Blowing in the Wind, I knew a lot about almost like praying. And in fact, if you read Blowing in the Wind, you'll meet some of the Kellehers long before they are established in this new book. So you get to see shadows of them there and even little seeds of what happens because there's one character in Almost Like Praying that had a bad, bad accident and he loses the, the use of his legs. That's a major theme throughout Almost Like Praying, but in Blowing in the, blowing in the Wind, you get to see the day that that happens. So it's very interesting. You've written both fiction and nonfiction. Yes. Um, Joel, do you, is, do you have a preference for one over the other? Do you enjoy the freedom of, of being able to fill in so many of the gaps when you're creating a story to tell? Um, I'll be totally honest, because I always am, first of all. Um, I do enjoy the fiction a little more on exactly what to do how I want and I don't have to um, 
facts, and I don't have to do a ton of and fix my my own background. Joel, they always say you should know what you know. Yeah, Joel, you're you're cutting in and out a little bit, and I'm not sure why that is. Did I lose you altogether? Well, I'm not hearing anything from Joel. Perhaps if he can still hear me, um, he'll uh, disconnect and, and call me back and we can reestablish the connection and finish up talking about uh, journalist and author Joel Sandberg and um, his new book, Almost Like Praying. And uh, we're talking about that and some of his previous books and writing in general. And I think he's back with me right now. There's the uh, there's the line he's calling in. Joel, welcome back. Sorry, I don't know what happened. Yeah, technical difficulties. You hear me now? Yep, yep. Just welcome, okay. welcome to live radio. Um, yeah, really. But uh, yeah, let's <coughs> let's go back and and pick up where we left off because you kept cutting in and out. Okay. What were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. Um, no, I think we were talking. Well, we were talking about the overlap of characters and the books being standalone. Oh, we were books. talking about fiction versus nonfiction. That's right. Um, I, I like the the freedom of the fiction, and also, you know, with nonfiction, more or less, at least in my case, you always try to get a. a, a a contract first, because if you're going to spend a year or two or three researching something for a fic for a nonfiction book, you want to make sure that it's definitely going to be published. Whereas with fiction, that's that's the fun stuff, and you can write it on your own without having a publisher, and then try to get a publisher. Um, and if it if it happens, it happens, and if it doesn't, well, you know, it lasts forever anyway, and you become famous after you're dead, like so many writers <laughs> and artists. Uh, so I I do enjoy the fiction a little more, but I am a fan of the nonfiction, and I have several nonfiction books and several ideas for other nonfiction books. And uh, depending on the success of Almost Like Praying, maybe that'll give me a little bit of a cachet to to be able to interest some other publishers and some of my other ideas for both fiction and nonfiction. I have one nonfiction idea I really want to do called 1964, which is all about that year in America, a very seminal year in America. It was the year the Beatles came here. It was the year after Kennedy was assassinated, which affected much of the nation's mood. Uh, very fascinating year. I mean, Fiddler on the Roof, Funny Girl, they all, uh, Hello Dolly, it all opened up that year. Um, a great year for television, a great year for movies. So I want to write a book called 1964, and I'm trying to interest some publishers in that now. Interesting. And do you have to research a lot when you're doing fiction for authenticity? I, we mentioned when we, or I mentioned when we first started talking, that one of the elements of the book was that you were basing some of the of the characters and events on childhood memories and impressions of real people um but but do you have to do some research to to make sure that things are authentic uh um, for, for for the first for the last two novels i've had to do a little bit just to remind myself what things were like back in that time period i mean um 
both uh, almost like praying and blowing in the wind take place primarily in the late 50s, early 60s, late 60s, and into the 70s. Now, I was around then, of course, but I have to remind myself of some of the news events of the day and some of the music of the day. It's not that I don't know it. It's just that I've been living a lot since then, and I tend to forget a little bit about it. But with the next novel, uh, Jackie Jester, most of it takes place in the 30s and 40s and 50s. So, yeah, uh, in terms of character and character development, no, I don't have to research that at all. That comes out of my own knowledge and my own memories of my own grandfather and things like that. But in terms of what was going on in 1936, let's say, uh, the music that was around that year or the movies that were around that year and the news events, yeah, I got to do a little bit of research just, just so that I could make believe that I was living then so I could write about it accurately. That's that's fascinating. Um, are you able to um, pick and choose your projects and, and write and make a living, or do you have to, to hold down a reporting job too? Actually, um the the short answer is yes, I have to do other things in order to continue to pay the mortgage. The longer answer is that it's not what you said. What I do uh, on a on a bread and butter basis <laughs> is uh, marketing communications. I work with uh, oh, okay. on a freelance and outsource and contract basis with a lot of companies and organizations writing uh, annual annual reports, white papers, press releases, employing newsletters. You name it, if it has anything to do with business writing, internal or external business writing, I, I do it. And uh, that's, that's the more or less steady part of the income. The magazine writing is, although it's steady, it's not particularly well paid. And the books, of course, uh, at least for fiction, you just have to wait and see how they do. Uh, there's nothing up front. There, there are no advances anymore. I mean, there are for some authors, but, but not for relatively little guys like me. No advances. You just earn what you earn based on how much you sell, which is why programs like yours come in so handy for the publicity well, because, uh, you know, it's expensive to publicize. Joel, I'm having a great time talking with you, but we are just about out of time, and I always want guests. No, 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 no. <laughs> and, I will and, not have that. And I know you offered to stay for days, but uh, we'll, we'll have to pick it up <laughs> on, an, on another day. Um, Okay. Joel, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share? Well, I would actually, I, I do, but it's very business-oriented, so unless your your listeners are, you know, corporate communications directors, I don't think that would come in too handy. I would prefer if your, if your people went to uh, just, just Google my, not Google my name, but if they went to Amazon and typed in my name, and then all of my books would come up. And then once all of my books come up, it usually leads you to some other places where you could find out a little bit more about me. Well, Joel Sandberg is my guest, author of uh, his latest novel, which is uh, almost like praying. And Joel, thanks so much, and uh, keep up the oh, good work. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Appreciate it. You too. Bye. And with that, we're going to take a uh, short break. If you're listening to us on WFOV 92.1 LPFM Flint, 
They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions. And my good friend Paul Herring, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car. Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey. Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Lone Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee. Health Plan, Flip Flip Technology, Mark Community College, Pure Michigan. 
Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to tom at tomsumnerprogram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, the Bickerson. Like most married women, Blanche Bickerson is a romanticist. Having talked poor husband John into taking her on a second honeymoon, three o'clock in the morning finds Mrs. Bickerson in the lobby of a small hotel at Niagara Falls. Exhausted and bleary-eyed from the long drive, John Bickerson unloads the luggage outside as his wide-awake wife talks to the night clerk. Let's listen. It doesn't really matter about the room as long as we have a nice view of the falls. Yes, ma'am. I'll bet you don't remember me. No, ma'am. Well, I wouldn't expect you to with all the honeymoon couples you meet. I was here seven years ago. Is that so? Yes. (laughs) Well... Better luck this time. Oh, we're still married to each other. We're just having a second honeymoon. Do many people do that? No, ma'am. I wonder why. I wouldn't know, ma'am. Are you married? No, ma'am. Arthritis makes me walk this way. Will you please sign the register? Oh, I'm sorry. Last time we were here, we had to wait two days for a room. We stayed in a motel in Buffalo. Oh, here you are. Thank you. Is that Bickerson? Yes, didn't I sign it right? Yes, ma'am. Mrs. John Bickerson and husband. Here's the key, room 318. There's the automatic elevator over there. We don't have any bellboys at night. Oh, that's all right. I'll go out to the car and get my husband. John, where is he? He's not in the car. I wonder if he took the luggage out of the trunk. Good heavens! John, get out of that trunk, you darned fool. John, John, John. Blanche, 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 shut the door. There's a draft. Come out of that thing. All right, all right, all right. Don't pull. Ow, my hand. Oh, serves you right. Pick up that luggage and straighten yourself up. Ow. I don't want you to go in that nice hotel looking like a ragamuffin. It's a nice muffin. Um, grab a couple of these bags, will you, Blanche? No! It wouldn't look right on our honeymoon. Come on! Oh, my back. Where's the bellboy? We don't have any at night. Are you the clerk? Yes, sir. Where's the register? I, I want a room with a bed. I've already signed it. You've got a room. Good. Where are you going to sleep? Come on, John. Stop dragging your feet. I just drove 2,000 miles for a second honeymoon. Lead me to my room. You had to talk like that in front of the clerk. Oh, let me sleep, will you, Blanche? I'd just like to go one place with you that you didn't embarrass and humiliate me. You've been unbearable since we left home. Keep going. In here? Yes. 
Pull the bags in so I can shut the door. No windows? No nothing? How much do they get for this broken down room? This is the elevator! (laughs) Oh, well, push the button or something and get it started. I can't keep my eyes open another minute. I was afraid this would happen. I'd hoped that going on a second honeymoon would bring us closer together. Can't get much closer than this, unless you throw the luggage out. Every time I want you to be romantic, you're so distant, John. What is keeping us apart? The brown suitcase. What floor are we on? I'm sleepy. You're always sleepy. When you're not sleepy, you're humiliating me. I'll never be able to face that night clerk in the morning. You won't have to. Why not? There'll be a day clerk. Which way is the room? I don't know, and I don't care. I'm going to stay in the elevator. Oh, come on, will you, Blanche? Well, say you're sorry. I'm sorry. Now, where's the room? Right in front of you, 318. Well, open the door before I collapse. Thank heaven. I gotta get some sleep. Well, put the lights on. Don't stumble around in the dark. Don't want to open my eyes. Just aim me at the bed and give me a shove. I'm not going to let you sleep until you undress properly and unpack the luggage. Oh, Blanche, why'd you have to bring so much stuff? You've got as much stuff as I have. I have not. All I brought was my toothbrush and my overnight bottle. You and that bourbon. You wouldn't take five steps away from home without it. Well, I can still remember what happened when we got snowbound in that cabin. That wasn't so terrible. Oh, not much. I had to live for two weeks on nothing but food and water. Don't throw my things around like that. There's no closet. Where shall I put these dresses? In the drawer. Where do you want these drawers? In the dresser. Fold up your pants neatly and put them under the mattress. Okay. Well, take them off first. John, what a fool I was to think you'd change. The second honeymoon was just as big a mistake as our first one. Oh, no, it wasn't. I'm so sorry you made me go on this trip that I could just die. I didn't make you go. You shanghaied me. even tried to get me to marry you again. Was that such an unreasonable request? Yes, it isn't legal. Why not? A man can't be punished twice for the same crime. Oh, that's too bad about you. How you shame me in front of all my friends. And after I sent the invitations out, too. Well, I wasn't going to have any formal wedding and put out a lot of dough to feed your hungry friends and their squalling brats. There wouldn't have been any brats there at all. How do you know? Because I said plainly on the invitation, Mr. and Mrs. John Bickerson will be married March 9th. No children expected. Put out the lights. I'm never going back to that horrible apartment we live in. I'm going to sit here and stare at the falls forever. Wouldn't hurt you to look at them either, John. I see them every day on the shredded wheat box. How can you be so cynical? I'm glad I have a little romance in my soul. Just the sight of those falls brings back memories. Mm, Yeah. Sit up, John. Look at that cascade. Doesn't it remind you of something? Yeah. What, John? I think I left the water running in the bathtub. John, you didn't. Okay, I didn't. Good night, Blanche. I never should have trusted you to lock up. Now I'm really worried. Did you close all of the windows? Close the windows. You didn't leave any lights burning, did you? Uh, no. Did you leave food for the cat? Left enough for a week. What did you leave him? A six-pound tin of corned beef. Did you empty it into a plate? No. Well, how do you expect the cat to eat? I left the can opener on top. Stop worrying about the cat. We should have taken all the animals with us. Poor little canary locked in the cage. Cat can't get out of the house. And who is going to feed the goldfish? Oh, I'll bet they're terribly unhappy. Oh, they're not unhappy. They're having a fine vacation. They are not. They are, too. When I left, the cat was fishing. 
fishing? Where? In the goldfish bowl. He was using the canary for bait. John Bickerson! Oh, go to sleep. The canary and the goldfish are fine, and I wish the cat would drop dead. Don't talk like that. I love that cat. When I get home, I'm going to enter him in a cat show. What for? He couldn't win anything. Maybe not, but he'd meet a lot of nice cats. Go to sleep, will you, Blanche? I'm not sleepy. Why don't you sit up and talk to me? Blanche, people don't talk at four in the morning. You talked until five o'clock on our first honeymoon. You kept reciting poetry and telling me how beautiful I was. Do you remember what you said, John? No. You told me your love for me was like a raging inferno. You said you had a fierce fire blazing in your breast like a live coal. What happened to it, John? It's only a clinker now. How can you say such terrible things to me? Blanche, I'm so sleepy, I don't know what I'm saying. I'd like to hear you say things like that to Gloria Gooseby. Can't I even go to Niagara Falls without Gloria Gooseby? The only reason you didn't was because she wouldn't have you. What? You proposed to her 15 times before you proposed to me. You big second fiddle, you. I never proposed to Gloria Gooseby, and you know it. And the next time I see her, I'm going to punch her husband, Leo, right in the nose. What have you got against Leo? He's a better husband than you are. I'm sick of hearing that, too. Leo Gooseby is a cheap, chiseling bum. He is not. He's more generous than you. Would Leo Gooseby give you a new dress? No. Would he give you a new hat? No. Would he give you a mink coat? No. Would you give me a mink coat? No. Why should I give you anything? Leo wouldn't. Stop screaming. You'll wake up the whole hotel. Well, stop goading me. You want me to do nothing but fight, fight, fight? No, I don't. All I do is ask for proof you love me, and you go into a tantrum. Blanche, what more proof do you want? I tell it to you a thousand times a day. I raise a new crop of freckles to spell out I love you. I painted it on all the Burma shave signs. Somebody's at the door, John. Honey, honey, honey. Honey! Madam, this is not a beehive. It's my bedroom. What are people wandering around in the halls this time of night? Don't be so crabby. It's probably some nice little bride who can't find her husband. Maybe he's lost. He isn't lost. He's hiding. Put out the lights, will you, Blanche? I've got a vile headache. Nobody told you to yell your brains out. Good night. If you just stand here and look at the falls for a few minutes... Your headache will go away and you'll sleep fine. Where does all that water come from? I once read it goes over at the rate of 346,000 gallons a second. John? Yeah? Are the falls higher on the American side or on the Canadian side? I don't know. I'll have to find out in the morning. What a majestic spectacle. I'm convinced there's nothing in the world like Niagara Falls. Except you, Blanche. Really, John? Why do you say that? Because you never dry up either. Good night, John. Sumner 
show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.